Okay, so we need to put that number into the into formula. Into that equation. Yep. And while you're doing that, I just want to blurt out here that my dad is really going to get a kick out of this episode because <laughs> he listened to two of the other ones and he's like, well, that's impossible because the land mass is like, and, I'm, and he's figuring out the gravity and all this. And I'm like, no, dad. Well, I have to confess, you guys, I do the same thing when I listen to your show. <laughs> no. So this episode will be right up his alley. He'll be like double checking the work and he'll be like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then they need to do this. So it'll be interesting to see how he likes this one. Meanwhile, the rest of the audience will be like. I know they're all like, get to the species already. Welcome to Crucible of Realms. I'm Jim. I'm John. And I'm Kent. And our guest today is author Matthew Wayne Selznick. Hello, sir. Hello, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Welcome, uh, welcome. It, it is awesome to have you on. Uh, folks who listen to the podcast may remember that I actually put up a recommendation for your world building series on your website. Um, at Selznick.com. But what they may not know is that you actually have a book out now compiling some of that. Yeah. What I've done is, that was kind of the plan all along, is to do a series of blog posts and then collect those, gradually putting together a guide on how to create a realistic Earth-like planet for your fiction or for your role-playing game or video game or your transmedia experience or, or uh, any kind of content that requires a realistic but not real fictional world. And that's called world building for writers, gamers, and other creators. Awesome. Now, uh, just for folks who may not be familiar, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, let's see. I typically refer to myself just simply as a creator because I, I'm an author, I'm a musician, I do a little bit of stuff with video, I make things. <laughs> Most people in the podcast realm probably know me for the free podcast novel Brave Men Run, a novel of the Sovereign Era, which uh, came out lo these many years ago in 2005. It was one of the first mm, couple dozen or so free podcast novels to be released. It had the distinction of being the first novel of any kind to have a simultaneous release in paperback, in DRM-free ebook formats, and as a free podcast. And uh, since then, I've got probably got about, oh, I would say about a dozen titles available, mostly in electronic format, you know, at all the usual places, Amazon, the Nook, the Kobo store, and on my own website. And um, yeah, I write, I uh, make music. Every now and again, I create websites for people. I help authors and other creative people get their own stuff going. And for a while there, I was producing interactive marketing for uh, major motion pictures. So it's, uh, I've been a busy guy. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. You I was sing, say you dance. You... <laughs> I do sing. I don't dance all that well. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, actually, it's. Uh, I, I have heard some of your stuff. I heard the John Smith stuff you did uh, oh. for Seventh Son. It was really good. Yeah, that was a fun collaboration. Very challenging. So with the world building series, where did the idea for this come from to uh, compile the stuff and put it up? Well, partially for my own purposes. One of the things I try to advocate for authors is to think in terms of story worlds. 
not just in terms of books, but in terms of the entire sort of franchise of content that your book might be a, what you might call a tentpole for. So rather than just thinking, oh, I'm going to write a series of books or you know a trilogy or what have you, and then the story will be over, well, you put a lot of work into that. Why not organize it in such a way and have it be internally consistent in such a way that not only can you create other pieces of content from that secondary creation, but it, you could license anyone else to do the same thing. So the idea came to me that, you know, for probably 15, 20 years, there hasn't been a good guide on scientifically feasible, internally consistent world building. There's a couple of things in the uh, RPG space, but nothing that's really kind of focused on storytelling and also scientifically accurate without sacrificing story. Uh, and so I started doing the blog series, uh, World Building for Writers, Gamers, and Other Creators, with the idea that it would be a top-down kind of thing. We would literally start by looking at the stars that are suitable for Earth-like planets, and then go down to the planet and work out the orbital information, and then cover the satellite. And then once that sort of macro view is done, then we can start zooming in on the planet and think about geography and climate and weather and how those things all work together. And then go down from there and start thinking about the ecology and really just top down until we've covered, and by we, I mean me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I, I use the royal we the myself. good old royal we. Yep. Yeah, it, it, it's an ego boost. But eventually, you know, having a series of blog posts and then each sort of larger topic collected into a small ebook, having a series of ebooks for people who maybe don't need the whole kabang, they just want to deal with weather or they just want to deal with ecologies or they just want to deal with the stars and planets and moons. And also, eventually, down the line, everything will be available in an omnibus edition that will probably be in print and in electronic format. So that's the big plan. It was so awesome. that I could have a tool with all those resources in one place and to uh, make that tool available for others and, of course, to have a, a revenue stream at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> always good when you can do that. Yeah. No, that's always great when just the thing is the, the resource that you build for yourself happens to be something that uh, you can get others to pick up and buy and they can get use out of. Yes. And uh, I think this is going to be really great once it's all out there. But for right now, Volume 1 is out. And if people want to pick that up, where should they do that? You can go right to the shop at mattselznick.com, or you can search for it on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble. It's available at any of those electronic stores. If you purchase it from my site, what you'll get is a bundle that has both the EPUB and the Mobi format. So that should cover pretty much any electronic reader that you use or have. And of course, you can get it at the Kindle store or at the Nook store. Excellent. And that again is World Building for Writers, Gamers, and Other Creators, yes. Volume 1 star planet moon and it's actually that setup that's going to kind of inspire the direction of this episode because i kind of figured if we've got an expert on here or someone has put all this stuff together then let's make use of it do you have a background in physics or is this just something that you did your own research and i guess astronomy would be one of the astronomy and geology I don't have a formal background in the sciences, but I've done a lot of research. And what was interesting to discover is that most of this stuff, while there is math involved, especially when you're dealing with the larger scale stellar system type stuff, orbital dynamics and things like that, there is math involved. But as long as you're kind of dealing with everything on the same scale 
you know, in units of Earths, for example, then the math is surprisingly straightforward and can really just be done on a calculator or with a spreadsheet. So no, there's no formal scientific background. I did have someone, uh, two people with a scientific background, do a review of the math on the ebook so that, you know, if I had slipped a decimal point here or there, they would have caught that. So thankfully for that. But this is a resource that basically what folks, when they pay their $1.99 for the ebook, what they're paying for is the time that I took to gather all this in one place and and put it in what I hope is a cohesive form. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Okay, well, let's get to it. So, Matt, would you like to do the honors of kind of taking us through the process here so we can get started? Sure. I guess uh, we'll start from the top in thinking about what type of star we want to select. Folks might remember this from their junior high or high school science classes. Do people still get junior high or high school science? I guess it depends on what part of the country you're from. Um, (laughs) I would hope. Um, I would hope. But basically, stars are broken into what they call spectral classes, and uh, they are a series of letters. Uh, They are O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. And that range, with, uh, from, starting from O, goes from hot and bright down to M, which is dim and cool. Oh, and I should mention each of those designations are further divided 0 to 9. You have your hot, bright stars like O2 to F4 are going to be too hot and bright. The hotter and the brighter the star is, the faster it burns out. And we need a star that's going to be around long enough for complex life to develop and evolve. So everything from O2 to F4, we can probably rule out. And the problem with the upper range, uh, say uh, K through M, they might last for billions and billions of years, but they might not produce enough energy at a distance appropriate to place a planet and still call it Earth-like. You know, it could be so far away and have such a long orbit uh, that the year would be so long, that the, the seasons would be so long, that we really... The goal of world building for writers, gamers, and other creators is to create a, a, a similar to Earth world so that creatures that are similar to us would be there. Now, you can play with these ranges all you want and come up with some really exotic life forms. But if we want to have something that's relatively similar and relatively stable for developing an Earth-like planet, we're looking right in the Goldilocks zone of maybe F5 through K5. That's going to give you stars that are roughly uh, plus or minus 20% the temperature of Earth's sun. And they're going to be around for anywhere from 3 to 15 billion years. Now, our own stars is a G2 star. So roughly 10 billion years, we can stick with G or we can think of a really, again, at this stage, at this level, if we're developing a a relatively primitive culture and whatnot, as long as we choose a star between F5 and K5, it's probably going to be just fine. Um, Okay. So if I'm guessing this correctly, basically we're looking at getting something either uh, hotter or cooler than Earth's star, possibly, or something about the same... So what do we think about that? What do we want as far as that goes? Do we want something about the same temperature as Earth's star or warmer or cooler? What do you think, guys? Are we going to... I, I think we should go hotter. Hotter. Well, okay, so so if it's hotter, are, are we talking about, are we going to move the habitable zone out? Are we going to make it an Earth-like planet, or are we going to go for something different? We can go in a couple of directions as far as that goes. I know we're kind of good jumping ahead on that. Uh, <laughs> but it is a factor, because uh, yeah. if, you know, if you choose a cooler star, then your world will have to be closer to receive a roughly Earth-like level of yeah. energy, and that means a shorter year. That's yeah. what I was going for, yeah. Yeah. 
I like a longer year. That's why I was going for. So we want to do something that's a little bit hotter than Earth Star, but that'll give it a, a longer year. Is that doable? Sure. Yeah. Why don't we call it an F9 star, just for fun? We'll go right at the edge of the Fs. Okay. An F9 star is going to have a temperature in Kelvins of about 6,100. And can you give, for references, Earth's Kelvin? Oh, sure. Earth being a G2 star is about 5,770. Okay. okay. So about 400 plus. Okay. Yeah. So we've got the classification of star. What's next? Next would be figuring out the habitable zone of our star, where our planet would live. We have to figure out some things about the star to determine that habitable zone. We need to know the mass and luminosity of the star. Uh, okay. And fortunately, from one, we can kind of figure out the other. So, for an F9 star, the mass is 1.041 stellar masses. In other words, it's 1.041 times the mass of Sol, our okay. own star. So the way we figure out the luminosity is we take the mass and raise it by a power of 3.5. So we have to get out a calculator. Go! <laughs> <No! laughs> now, is nobody told me there'd be math on this? Yeah. <laughs> it's too late now. <laughs> is it always going to be 3.5 or is it different depending on the star? 3.5. No, that's, that's oh, 3. sort of 5. a constant. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, this falls apart if you're dealing with stars at the far ends of the spectrum. But for relatively Sol-like stars, this will work. Come on, let's uh, build a planet around a black hole. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> hey, oh, there we are. <laughs> About three days long. later, yeah. <laughs> civilization collapses. Unfortunately, <laughs> it took forever for them, relative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, you're going to be handling the, the calculations here? Sure. Fantastic. So... Take 1.041 and raise it by a power of 3.5. 1.151. All right. So that's our luminosity. So this star is basically 115% more luminous, gives off more energy, to be simplistic about it, than Earth's own sun. So now... And we can get complicated about it and work on finding the inner limit of the habitable zone and the outer limit. Or we can just keep things relatively simple and just find the Earth twin distance, the distance from that star where it'll get the same amount of energy as Earth does from the sun. Ah, uh, well, probably for the safe, for brevity's sake. Let's for, for, just do... for safety. Yeah. And so that we do not uh, have any, uh, any crippling mathematical accidents, we should probably just go ahead. I like what you were talking Earth about. Yeah, I believe that I agree that for the sake of brevity, we'll go with the Earth twin. And sure. this is very simple. Just take that luminosity, okay. take the square root of that luminosity, and there is the Earth twin distance in astronomical units. 1.072. 1.072 astronomical units. So an astronomical unit is the mean distance between the Earth and the Sun. Our so our little Earth twin is just slightly further out from our star than the Earth is. Excellent. Now we can work out the orbital period in Earth years. We know the two things that we need to figure this out, which is the mass of our central star and the distance of our planet from that star. John, are you ready with your calculator? Yeah. This is a multi-step process here. Okay. I have the tiger, man. I have the tiger. <laughs> Go for it. So the first step is to take the distance from the star and cube it. So 1.072 cubed. 
Okay, so that's 1.23. And you're going to take that and you are going to divide it by the mass of the star, which I think we figured out was 1.041. Okay, that's 1.182. And now, this is where the magic happens, find the (laughs) square root of 1.182, and that will be your length in Earth years. 1.087. All right. Times 365. Right. Times 365.2563. Ooh, we're, uh, we're, we're going into the decimals now. It's the quarter day. Remember that day when they told you about leap year and you thought, what does that matter? Well, that, that <laughs> now it matters. Now it matters. 365.2563. Okay, so it's very close to 400 days. 397.033 days. And that's Earth days. That's not right. local days. Right. All right. So they have like maybe a leap, what, decade, something like that? Century. Probably. <laughs> a leap <Yeah>. century. Okay. <laughs> uh, Remember, every hundred years, add another day. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing we could think about is the eccentricity of the orbit. It doesn't change the length of the year, but it will have a factor in the planet's climate as that year progresses. Eccentricity, of course, is how much of a perfect circle is the orbit. At some point of the orbit, is it measurably further away from the star? And at the other end of that orbit, is it measurably closer? This is the kind of thing that, you know, you would you would figure out and then tuck away for later because it really enters into things like climate and, and the overall temperature of the world and things like that. We can pretty much ignore the eccentricity for now or just assume that it's close enough to zero to not matter. Yeah, I think that's for the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, that's what my relatives do, so that's uh, probably... <laughs> they just ignore your eccentricity. Yeah. Yes, they, they've learned, they've learned, and so, so too should the heavenly bodies. So what's next? Well, next would be the rotation period. And to be honest, there's no real way to decide mathematically how fast a planet is going to be because there are so many factors that go into the rotation, including the overall momentum of the entire solar system when it was formed, collisions from other bodies, the mass of any satellites. All this stuff can speed up or slow down or both over millions of billions of years, the rotation. That said, we can think about kind of how we want the flavor of our world to be. Do we want a longer day? Do we want a shorter day? Things that this would impact, of course, you know, right down to culture, but also it would impact how things evolve. You know, maybe the planet doesn't rotate at all and you've got a tidally locked situation. (laughs) The dark side of the planet. That kind of lends itself to some interesting possibilities if we want to go there. What do you think, guys? Do we want long day, short day, eternal day? How are we looking at it? I like 36 hours, Earth hours, in one of their days. I think that Any particular be... reason? No, I like the number okay. 36. Fair enough. No, <laughs> Something to do with the fact that there's so much to do that we wish there was a day and a half available for there each you day. There go. Yep, that's it. <laughs> so, longer day. John, are we good with that? Yeah, that works. All okay, right. yeah. So, let's say like 36 hours. So, 36 Earth hours. Now, there are two different types of day. There's the solar day and the sidereal day. The sidereal day is the time it takes any point on the planet to revolve around its axis relative to a distant point of reference, like the planet's star. So usually when we're talking about the rotation of planets, we're talking about the sidereal rotation. The thing is that the rotation period that matters to the people who live on the planet is the solar rotation, which is just Mm. the time between sunrises. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, there's a, a little bit of a difference because as a planet orbits the star, 
it has to rotate slightly farther to directly face the star. If you can kind of picture that in your head, as you're going around, if you imagine a singular spot on the world rotating, naturally, as you're making that circle, it takes just a little bit longer to reach the same point as it rotates around the star. So the difference between the sidereal and the solar day matters when we're working out the local time, the local number of hours or local number of units, <laughs> I guess you would say, in the day. Fortunately, figuring out the difference between the two is pretty simple. Oh, um, good. Yeah. <laughs> so we figured out we have a 36-hour sidereal day. To figure out the solar day, we basically take the sidereal day in Earth hours. <laughs> it gets complicated to spell it out. Oh, yeah. One minus the sidereal day in Earth hours divided by the orbit period in Earth hours. Yeah. So there are basically two variables that we're figuring in there, which is the orbit period in Earth hours and the sidereal day in Earth hours. Now, we have our Earth years orbit period of 397.033 to figure out Earth hours. Let's assume it's 24, just for the sake of simplicity. Just, you know, 397.033 times 24. 9,528.792. Go ahead and use that to plug into that formula. Okay, so we need to put that number into the into formula. Into that equation, yep. A solar day is 36 hours, 0.1365. Fantastic. So 36.135 hours... In the solar day is also 36 hours, 8 minutes, 6 seconds. Wow. Now, an interesting thing about a slowly turning planet like this one is that your weather systems are going to be correspondingly less powerful. It's less cool. of a Coriolis effect. Uh, basically, the velocity of the atmosphere is pretty much the same as the velocity of the planet at the equator. But the further north and south you go, the planet is actually moving slower than the atmosphere, mm -hmm. which pulls the atmosphere to the side, which gives us these whirling patterns of atmosphere that we see as air currents, and those turn into storms, basically, and hurricanes or typhoons, depending on where in the world you are. So it's possible that our planet might have a slightly gentler weather system than the Earth. Why, Not hurricanes, so much... hurricanes turn one way in the northern hemisphere and the other way in the southern hemisphere. That's right. The other thing, of course, is that the temperature because the atmosphere just helps distribute the temperature, because that air is getting nice and warm at the equator, and then that slow spinning pushes that warm air north and south. It's going to happen slower, so I can take a couple of guesses and say that maybe the temperate area of this world will be a little larger than it is on Earth. I think yep. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, That's, that's my gut. Right. Just as a point of interest, if your world is really moving slow, you'll kind of get the opposite effect because the air is circulating so slowly, you'll have sort of a, a clash of warm air and cold air where oh, the tornado yeah. day and night is. So dawn and dusk would be like nasty storms. Vicious but, storms, yeah. Uh, okay. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, but we're probably not dealing with something as bad as that. Maybe we're ending up with something similar to like a Hawaii situation across a larger portion of the globe where oh, wow. you get that daily rain at, at four or five. You know what okay. I mean? Okay, yeah. Cool, cool. And this is just something that I put into the booklet, I'm not sure, of the scientific truth behind this, but is it possible that the speed of a planet's rotation would have some impact on the circadian rhythms of the life forms? Mm. Maybe metabolisms oh, yeah. are yep. faster on faster-moving planets, slower yeah. on slower worlds? 
maybe. Maybe. That mm-hmm. might be possible. Yeah, there, I mean, uh, I know there are theories to that effect or that mm-hmm. we haven't quite been able to... Or mm-hmm. hypothesize that effect anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and of course, there's so much leeway that, you know, so many other factors that come into play that you can yeah. say, yes, yes, they do. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think we'd probably be playing with that soon. Okay. But in the meantime, what are our next steps here? The next step is size, gravity, mass, and density of the world itself. Scientists have their theories on how big or how small a planet can be, and you can still call it Earth-like. The estimate that I put into world-building for writers, gamers, and other creators is about 75% to 125% times the radius of Earth. So somewhere in that range. Smaller than that, and gravity and density and whatnot would have a drastic impact on life evolving. And larger than one and a quarter times, same deal. Okay. So somewhere in there, we need to figure out, do we want our slightly slower world to be slightly larger or slightly smaller. Bigger so, is better. I like bigger. <laughs> it's not the size of the planet that matters, Ken. <laughs> wow. Do we want to go slightly bigger than Earth? or? Uh... Yeah, yeah. I like that. John? That we... Yeah, that works. Okay. okay. So, how much bigger? 1.15. All right. 1.15. Okay, so like 15% bigger? Mm -hmm. Some of the things about a larger planet, of course, will most likely have a stronger gravity, which helps you hang on to a rich, complex atmosphere. Of course, too much atmosphere, and you end up with a Venus-type situation. The other fun stuff about a larger planet is it's probably going to maintain its internal heat, so there could be Um. a little higher volcanic and tectonic activity. Ah, excellent. Please. We like volcanoes. <laughs> would imagine the magnetic field would be stronger. Yeah. yeah, you're right, especially if that convection is still going on. Exactly. So 1.15 times the radius of Earth. The neat thing about knowing the radius of the planet is that you can figure out how far away the horizon is. And you know what? I'm going to do a tease here because we want to leave something for the listener. So that's something they can find in World Building for Writers, Gamers, and Other Creatives, Volume 1, Star Planet Moon, which, of course, is $1.99 wherever fine ebooks are sold. I feel like I need to be ringing a bell right now. <laughs> oh, please don't. Sure. <laughs> that's T. Morris's thing, and believe yeah, me, he so can keep exactly. it. He can keep it. And he stole it from the... Uh, from the, the t-shirt guys. Uh, <laughs> but it's a neat little factoid, which is great when you're working out details of your story. You know, how far away is that mountain before your characters can see it? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it's just one of those little touches that brings the verisimilitude level nice and high. But so next thing we want to deal with is how massive the world is. Basically, the mass is interrelated with the density. You might have a very sort of large planet that might be poor in heavy metals and therefore be less dense and have a weaker relative gravity than a planet rich in heavy metals. You know, you've got a great big planet like Jupiter, which is actually 75% less dense than the planet Earth because, well, it's mostly gas. Um, The range for sort of an acceptable Earth-like planet, again, scientists say, uh, (laughs) with a sample of one... (laughs) (laughs) is between 0.4 and 2.35 Earth masses. 
So it's up to you guys. Is it slightly less massive than Earth and therefore maybe a little less mineral rich? Or is it rich in heavy metals and maybe a little more massive than Earth? Yeah, how do we feel about that? You make it much more than we'd have to reflect that in the biology of the inhabitants. I'm thinking Either way, maybe. you have to, I guess. Yeah, because yeah, well, this is yeah. going to affect our gravity. I was just going to blurt something out if no one said anything. Go for it. Uh, uh, I was thinking maybe slightly more dense than Earth. Only slightly. So it's like, if at some point in the distant future someone visits it, they might have to deal with getting around, but they won't be crushed. That kind go. of thing. Yep. And that density is? Ah, two. I have to remember numbers now. <laughs> Any, anywhere between 0.4 and 2.35. 1.0 is Earth, right? Or am I? Yes. Okay. All right. So do we want to go as far as, say, 1.5? One and a half times the mass of Earth? Yeah. Or is that so, too much? So a 25-pound dumbbell actually weighs 36 pounds, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't sound too bad. Well, it doesn't sound too bad when we talk about a 25-pound dumbbell. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's run with it and see how our gravity and density end up. And if, if, if we think it's too crazy, then we can, we can back it down. All right, or, cool. Or an 8-pound rifle now weighs 12. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> but does it affect the gauge? That's the question. <laughs> the gauge. Okay. <laughs> it probably affects how many times it spins as after it's been fired. Ah, well, that is true. Okay, well, let's stick with 1.5 for now and see how it goes. All right. So we have oh, 1.5 yes. Earth masses, 1.15 times the radius of Earth. Now that we know those two things, we can figure out the density. And this is relatively straightforward. John, you're going to want to take the radius of 1.15 and raise that to the third power. Okay. 1.52. Oh. Okay. Now, take the mass of 1.15 and divide it by that figure that you just got. 1.15 divided by 1.5. Did I say 2.0? You did. 0.7565. All right. So that's our density. What does it mean? Well, it means that this planet that is a little bit larger, but also a little bit more massive, turns out to be just a little bit less dense. 25% 25% less dense than the Earth. Uh-oh. We screwed ourselves. <laughs> no, well, well, not necessarily. This is interesting. How does, It um, would float in water. It was... <laughs> does it mean that there, there's more open space inside, or does this mean... Well, how does that work? Uh, that That is basically it. There's either... Well, I mean, more open space, not so much, but there is basically less dense material, which usually amounts to metals, per unit of volume than on the Earth. Or in ah, the Earth. okay. So once whatever society is on there gets to mining, they will have fewer precious metals. It's going to be uh Or they'll have to supply. find them fewer, you know, farther apart, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Interesting. Okay, so this is looking like it's going to start eventually be like a planet of scarcity with respect to that resource anyway. Very probably, yes. Interesting. The great thing now, the fun stuff that we can now figure out now that we have the density and the radius is the gravity. And this is very simple. Density times radius. So 0.869. 0.869 is your gravity. 0.869 Earth gravities. Yeah. Yeah. So So gravity is basically 87% that of it on Earth. Wow, okay. Okay, so everything's lighter now. That's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. I know, it's kind of fun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a bigger planet, even though the... Yeah, no, I got it. Yeah, okay, if, cool. If you have a, a big balloon and you fill it with mud, it's going to weigh more than if you fill it with air, basically. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <clears throat> that makes sense. 
That's very, yeah, okay, yeah, totally. Because so that's why they, when they say that bodies of greater mass are attracted to each other in space, this is the math of that, basically. Yes, exactly. I'm, yeah, yeah. You could have a giant, giant asteroid, and if it's built like a sponge, it's not going to be as massive as one that's solid iron. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Like a gold brick weighs more than a normal brick. Yes. Right. Because gold is heavier than is denser. Is denser, denser, yeah. Precisely. More dense. Cool. Let's move on a bit then. And Mm -hmm. what are we hitting up next? The next area in the booklet deals with the molecular weight of the atmosphere. And that might be a little bit more complex than we want to get here because really the benefit to molecular weight is you get to figure out the scale height of the atmosphere. In other words, how rapidly the atmosphere thins out with altitude. Ah, okay. You know, and and I don't know that for the purposes of our discussion, if we need to to really get into that. But yeah, you can end up with things like mountains that break through the atmosphere. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) You know? That is cool. So I guess folks who are interested in working it out can probably go and they they can find it in the book. Uh, But I guess for the purpose of what we're doing here, would it be breaking things too much to assume that it's probably vaguely similar to Earth and just sort of leave it at that? Indeed. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We'll just assume that the atmospheric pressure is one. Okay. You know, what we can move on to that might have a bearing on our discussion is the mean planetary surface temperature. Now, this is is a, a kind of a complex issue. It deals with not just the heat energy that is received from the star, but also the albedo of the planet. In other words, how much of that heat is absorbed and how much is reflected into space. And of course, whatever greenhouse effect is in effect due to the thickness and density of the atmosphere. Well, the first step is to work out the heat energy received by the planet from the star. This is relatively simple. We're going to take the distance in astronomical units and square that. So, John, the distance in AU is 1.072. So find the square of that. 1.149. Okay. So we're going to take the stellar luminosity, which is 1.151, and divide it by 1.149. And that's 1.0017, so 1.001. Wow, pretty much as close to one as you could get, which makes sense, because remember, we placed our world at the Earth-twin distance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's the insulation, and that's insulation, uh, not insulation, insolation. Yeah. Uh, Well, there's a difference. (laughs) True, true. Uh, Otherwise, we'd have to break out lots of packing foam for this thing. (laughs) This is the heat energy received. Next comes the albedo, and this is basically how reflective is the planet's surface. In very broad strokes, and I suspect John can correct me if I'm off on this, lots of ocean, low albedo. Lots of ice, high albedo. Right. In addition, I would guess even lots of desert, high albedo. Right. Um, We think that the albedo of the Earth is about 0.3. In other words, it reflects back about 30% of the energy that it receives. The higher the albedo, the cooler the world will be. Okay, so how warm or cold do we want this planet to be relative to Earth? I would say just a little bit colder. I mean, not by much, though. So we don't want to do an ice planet, then, I take it? No, no, no. Ah, okay. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you that a little bit of albedo is going to go a long way. So All right, point so let's go slightly colder than Earth. Okay, 0.34, 0.35... Let's throw caution to the wind and go 0.36. Oh, Ooh. whoa. Okay. <laughs> now we might be dealing easy, with an ice easy. planet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was drunk with power. Everyone break out your tongue, so, so green grass is 0.25 albedo, typical albedo. Interesting. 
0.25? Wow. Point, yeah, 0.25. I suspect you have some sort of reference that you're looking at. Wikipedia. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no. I, oh, hell. Well, Wikipedia. then it must be true. <laughs> it's on Wikipedia. It must be true. It's uh, it's pretty dang exhaustive in this category. I, I would be surprised if it's wrong, actually. Yeah. So the next thing to figure out is the greenhouse effect. And greenhouse is essentially how much heat the atmosphere is retaining. So where albedo is heat energy being bounced away, greenhouse is heat energy not being released, basically, holding the heat within the atmosphere. And for reference, again, the greenhouse effect factor for an Earth-like planet is about 1.1. So higher greenhouse is going to result in a warmer world, lower in uh, all other things being equal, a colder world. So we have 1.1 as our baseline. Where would you like to go with the greenhouse? 1.3. 1.3. All right. Now, it's, is that going to counteract everything that we just did in making the planet slightly cooler? Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's see what we end up with. Okay. So there's a couple of sub-figures that we have to figure out. We take the albedo and subtract it from 1. We take the insulation and we raise it to the 0.25 power. Okay. Okay. And so, uh, dear listener, what we're doing is taking the greenhouse effect times 1 minus the albedo. We're taking that and timesing it by the insulation to the 0.25 power. We're taking all of that and we're timesing it, multiplying it by 374. And the listener's going, I need a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking a Jack and Coke, but hey, that, that was <laughs> <laughs> 311.168. 311.168 Kelvin. One Kelvin is equal to negative 272.15. I'm going to do a little quick Google calc. We've ended up with 38 degrees Celsius, which is, let me get the Fahrenheit for the rest of the world. So everyone outside the U.S. is now going, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What have they done? Ah, it's a hot world. Ah. Yes. 100.43 degrees Fahrenheit, on average. As opposed to, what's the average here on Earth? The average mean temperature of the planet, 15C Earth. or 59 Fahrenheit. Oh, my God. So 59 is the average of Earth? Yeah. Wow. We're way hotter than I yeah. thought. Yeah, this is... Uh, yeah, so that means your hottest places are going to be way above 100. That's actually in excess of, like, Death Valley. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the reason for that is your high greenhouse, basically. Yeah. Like, Good job, getting, Jim. There you go. I mean, Thank God. And, I mean, know, I was eventually... what happened. I was trying to skew it towards a Vulcan-type atmosphere, and I just blasted it, it into, like, yeah... <laughs> but interestingly enough, I think you should go with it because this means that there are going to be parts of the world that are probably wastelands. Oh, God. Um, or, I, I enjoy wastelands. Yeah, or, <laughs> I think we should have more of them. <laughs> or if they're not wastelands, they're going to have life, both animal and vegetable, that is going to be so extremely adapted to these extremes mm -hmm. that they're going to be almost alien to anything else on the planet. And the extremes of temperature are going to be, again, in very narrow bands or narrower bands because of that slow revolution. Cool. So this is going to be very interesting when we get to the creature creation part as well. But before we do that, we have more to investigate here. What's our next step? The moon. And you could do moons, plural, but let's keep it to one. <laughs> oh. And I was going, I was going for three. <laughs> 
<laughs> we will we will juggle moons later. <laughs> well, and and the other thing is the moon is interesting largely for cultural reasons. It's helpful for working out, you know, a calendar and things like that. It also does have a, an impact on the tidal force on the world. The argument these days scientifically is that you pretty much need to have a good-sized satellite in order to have tidal forces working on the planet in order to keep the proverbial primordial soup stirring because you know the, the general idea is either things got started way way down in the ocean depths or in tide pools and either way the tidal forces are going to have an impact tidal forces tend to have an effect on the earth's crust the planet's crust and of course we see you know anytime you go to the beach you see the effects on the oceans so the first thing we need to do is work out the roche limit which is basically how close can this moon be before it breaks apart that doesn't sound good before it breaks apart too close and it's not going to survive any length of time so we need to make sure that we know the Roche limit so that wherever we place the world it's not within that it's the minimum distance from the center of the parent body to the center of the satellite that's where the measurement is because you're basically dealing with the differences in gravity and you measure that force from the center of each gravitational body so the absolute inner limit we have to figure out and to do that we need our planet's radius in kilometers are you ready, John? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we know that our planet is 1.15 times the radius of Earth. So the Earth is... Actually, let me give you this figure. Yeah, 1.15 times 6,371. Okay, that's 7,326.65. Okay, so that's our radius in kilometers. We need to take the density of the planet, which we know, 0.7565, and divide it by the density of our moon, which we haven't (laughs) figured out yet. And so the question is, how dense do we want our moon to be? By way of comparison, I want to find the density of Earth's moon. The density of the moon is 3.346 grams per cubic centimeter. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Now now we can all live happy lives now that we know that. (laughs) Wait, convert that to kilometers. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what? My life will never be the same. Is that a lot? Is that a lot? Well, the moon is the second densest moon in the solar system. Really? Yeah. Io is the first. I was going (laughs) to, I was just about to ask if Io (laughs) was anywhere in there. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess we now need to decide how dense we want this moon to be Mm -hmm. uh, relative to that. Personally, I think I'd be happy with something about the same density as our moon, but how do we feel? Yep, I would agree. Same dense. All right. We're going to assume the density of our moon is 3.346 grams per cubic centimeter. We also need the density of our planet in the same figure. So if the Earth density is 5.52 grams per cubic centimeter... And our planet is 0.7565 Earth density. We know what we need to do. It's 4.175. All right. So divide the density of the planet by the density of the moon. 3.346. And that's 1.247. Okay. Find the cube root of that number. 1.076. Okay. Now times that by... 7326.65. Yes. 7,883.745. Say it one more time for me. Whoa. 7883.475. All right. 
So what we have there is our Roche limit in kilometers. We made it. <laughs> now, that's the distance from the center of our planet to the center of our satellite. Any closer than okay. that, it's, it's going to break apart really Shatter. fast. Yeah. Okay. Tidal forces will kill it. Exactly. So it's time to figure out how far away we want it to be. So we have that 7,883 kilometers from center to center. So mm -hmm. if we add the radius of our world, that gives us the real bare minimum. Yeah. So the center to center distance is 7883.475 plus the radius of the planet, which is 7326.65. So really, we're talking about a minimum orbital distance of 15,210 kilometers. Oh, uh, kilometers. OK. Yeah. Yeah. OK. I think the important thing here to determine then is how visible is it going to be in the night sky? I think this is really what it's going to come down to, narratively speaking, for creatures on this planet. The other impact is the tidal force. Well, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> Yeah. There may not be creatures on this planet. In this <laughs> <laughs> now, to give you some perspective, the distance of the moon to the Earth is 384,400 kilometers. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've got more room to work with than I thought then. Quite a yeah. bit. So how far out do we want this to be then? Do we want it closer? Do we want it further away? I say we could go a little closer, rounded off to an even 300,000. Okay. Now we can figure out the tidal force. And for that we need the mass of our moon and its distance, which we have. To find the mass, we have to decide on its radius. So the moon's radius, by again, by way of comparison, is 1,737 kilometers. So that's the size of our moon. How big is this slightly closer moon? Let's make it a little smaller. Sure. Just to kind of balance it out? Yeah. Okay. So versus 1737, could we take it down to, say, something somewhere around, would 1500 be ridiculous? Yeah, no, everything is up for grabs. Sure, 1500. Let's say around 1500. All right. Okay. Let's make it some weird numbers, like 1523. <laughs> yeah, make it easy on John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's fine. I have the target, John. I have the 1523, that's fine. Okay. It's just um, numbers, now, we're going to assume that this moon is a sphere, because otherwise it's just way too crazy calculated and crazy. Taurus. It's a Taurus. Come on. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it's a hypercube. Come on. <laughs> so, listeners, what we're doing basically here is working out the volume of our moon, and we're doing that by taking four times pi and finding that number, and then doing four divided by that number, and then we're multiplying that by the radius of our moon, Cubed. It's a very large number. That doesn't yeah. seem right. No, it's uh, going to be large. One billion one hundred twenty-four million four hundred seventy-five thousand. Let's compare it to the moon's volume, because maybe. Uh, yeah, that's maybe not that, right. Two point one nine eight times ten to the tenth is the okay. moon. So okay. we're on there. Okay, it's ridiculously wow. large, but at least we know it's within the realm of possibility. So I'm going to copy that. It'll really look cool in the night sky. That's for sure. <laughs> That's a lot of moon. Now, John, you have the moon's, Earth's moon's volume there as well. You have that number? Yeah. Okay. Figure out what percentage of Earth's moon our moon's volume is. Okay, 0 0.0521. 0 0.0521 
moons, we'll call moons. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we needed to do the volume because to figure out the mass of our planet, or our moon rather, we need to multiply volume by density. Now, the thing is, we need to make sure we're working with the same figures, the same scale. So we have to convert the density from grams per cubic centimeter to kilograms per cubic meter. Well, actually, since we're working with the moon's density, I bet you we can find that somewhere pretty quick. Density calculator. Let's see. I'm actually finding search results that have this. Good. Uh, yeah. Grams per cubic centimeter to kilograms per cubic meter. It's just moving the decimal point over. Uh huh. Maybe I'm. Metrics. So, is, man, it's all tens. <laughs> 3346. Three, 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 it's 3,346 kilograms per cubic meter. All right. Now, believe it or not, we're down to just simple multiplication. We're going to take the volume and multiply it by the density. So 3346 times that giant billion number. And you're probably going to end up with something in scientific notation okay. <laughs> on your readout there. Well, it did not convert it into scientific notation, but I will put the number in the chat. 3 trillion, 762 billion, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I missed the space, yeah. So what we have there is the mass in kilograms of our moon. Oh, and let's convert that to Earth moons. Mass of the moon is... The mass of Earth's moon is 7.34 times 10 to the 22nd kilograms. Ah, okay, there we go. So now that we have that, we can figure out how many moons is the mass of our moon. Calculator man. Yeah, I should have kept my mouth shut and I would have had it. <laughs> it's too late now. <laughs> so 5.212 times 10 to the minus 11th. So it would be such a small number. 0.005. Somehow we've ended up with something very, very strange. Keep in mind, it's only 5% of the moon's volume. Yeah. So its mass is going to be very small. Is this thing even going to be visible in the night sky? Is it going to have any effect on the tides whatsoever? (laughs) It might not. So the lesson here basically is that because these things do have such a cascading effect on one another, you're going to want to play with these figures to either get a result that fits more with your vision or you're going to want to change the vision. Okay, so basically if we put 11 zeros in front of that five, isn't that right? It'd be 10, but yeah. 10 zeros, yeah. And that's kilograms. So, yeah, we are dealing with a very, very tiny, tiny world. Or tiny in mass, at least. It could be a balloon. <laughs> it could be hollow. Right. Eh? Eh? The hollow moon. Yeah. Maybe it's a construct. It's made up of space rocks. It's just not very okay. dense. So, in other words, this is a, something that maybe it's, if it's something that's big enough to be visible, there's not a lot inside it. Right. It's just okay. not made up of anything substantial. Maybe it's more of a gaseous moon? Is that kind of No, no, no. It's, it's oh, made of... No, it, it could be sandstone. <laughs> it's, it's made out of styrofoam. Balsa wood. <laughs> the balsa moon. <laughs> Swiss cheese. Six or seven hours ago, we, we started this out because we were, uh, we were, we were attempting to, to figure out the tidal force of the moon on the world. Ah, yes, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And we can continue going through the motions and figure it out, but I think we can assume that it's almost nil. Yeah, I think at this point uh, it would probably be best to just decide that it has a negligible effect. Just right. Maybe it looks pretty, but it doesn't actually do much. Right. Now, the other thing is, the other thing we can figure out, if you want to go through it, is the orbital period around the planet. And then we can figure out how long a local day is how long the moon's orbit is in a local day and all that stuff. For the sake of our primitive culture, we probably don't need to go into that kind of detail. Um, yeah, I think we're just going to leave that kind of as is. And I guess the thing, dear listener, to take away from the exercise that we've sort of done is that when you're going through and working this out, recognize that the figures have sometimes a surprising effect on one another. And you may have to go back a step or two and say, hmm, well, maybe I don't want it to be that dense or maybe I want it to be more dense, the moon. Maybe, you know, I need to tweak this figure or that figure, which is why it's useful to use a spreadsheet so you can kind of plug these into different cells and then just change those cells and watch your final calculation change as you tinker. Some of the neat things you can do once you do have information on your moon, though, is figure out how fast it orbits the planet. And that's where the neat thing about the orbit is the difference between the sidereal and the, well, not solar in this instance, but synodic, they call it, can result in some very interesting patterns of time where your moon might be going so fast, but because of the speed of your planet, you might get a full moon every 15 or 20 orbits yeah, because wow. of how it appears in the sky. And that's all stuff that I describe in the booklet on how to figure that out. And it yeah. can make for some really cool local color and it can go a long way in helping you decide, for example, if you have a full moon in the sky every 43rd day, <laughs> yeah. you get some interesting calendars. Maybe full moons become greater significance or lesser significance. And then heck, for fun, you can throw a couple of different moons into the sky and combine and chart out, well, when both moons are full, it happens once every six years and that's a big holiday or, you know, things like that. So it is interesting to do and it can have a great impact on cultural stuff. And I'm sure it'll help a lot with consistency in terms of keeping everything together. Oh, exactly. Uh, calendar. Yeah. yeah. So we've covered everything in World Building for Writers, Gamers and Other Creators, Volume 1, Star, Planet, Moon. So, well, yeah. since we don't have a huge amount of time left, Let's go ahead and just decide a few basics about this planet and the primitives that we're going to have on it and just kind of leave it at that. I don't think we're going to need to go too deeply into social structure or uh, enemies or things like that. Just some very broad strokes, and I think we can just put a button on it. Let's uh, do a little guys... bit of a, a re review of what this world is like. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, we've already determined that it's a pretty hot planet. We've determined that it's uh, a bit bigger than Earth, and apparently we've determined that its moon has a negligible effect on anything. <laughs> what else do we remember about this place? Its day is, what, almost a third longer than... Uh, yeah, or yeah, a 36 half again. hours. Yeah, half yeah. again. year is about 400 days, almost. So a longer 400 day... 400 Earth uh, days. But and also its gravity is less, though, than Earth. It's got less in the way of the uh, resource of metals as well. So we have a metal-poor world with a slower rotation than the Earth, although yeah. it is roughly the same size as the Earth. A lot of the climate we were looking at was going to end up, there's going to be some wasteland in there. <laughs> what sort of zones, I'd be thinking, would we want to put things in? I mean, what, what would the terrain kind of look like, do we think? 
Oh, well, in general, the terrain, yeah, I mean, you can have any kind of terrain. You're just going to have different ratios than you would expect on Earth. Well, with the hotter temperature overall, basically that means higher extremes leaning toward the hot end. I doubt we have any ice caps worth talking about. Perhaps the slightly higher albedo is a result of desert areas. Maybe there's the same or slightly more of a hydrographic percentage in terms of water coverage. So it's interesting because I think what you have here is similar to how we have a band of deserts around the Earth, roughly where the subtropical meets the temperate zone. Think North Africa, the American Southwest. Yeah. That's probably going to be... So we're going to have a good deal of deserts then. Probably. Yeah, I would think so. so. What I'm thinking then is we should probably play with desert life forms then if we want to throw some creatures on here. Desert life Um, forms or think about what we think drove sentience to evolve on our world, which, as far as I understand, was an animal being driven from one climate to another kind of forcing the move, in our case, from the trees to the grasslands, which meant that people, people, pre-people, who could could stand were able to see further and could see predators faster, which freed up their hands, which gave them the ability to use those hands, which led to tool use, which led to intelligence, blah, 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 blah. So given our large deserts and a temperate area that is probably pushed toward the poles, what kind of creature would we end up with? For example... We come from omnivore stock, mm-hmm. right? And so I wonder, are we dealing with maybe uh, maybe it's a herd animal that perhaps migrated and then ended up diverging? The portion that migrated down into the temperate area, hey, it's pretty nice down here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Over the millennia, some of them stuck around. Hey, guys, it's nice down here. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you yeah, guys, go ahead. We're going to stick around. <laughs> Well, then that's what I'm thinking with the ones that didn't migrate down, where they have been forced to adapt more than, I guess. So if they ended up in a more temperate area just for more purpose of survival. Better temperature, better food, easier, more easy variety. living, easy living. Well, actually, with more variety comes more. Yeah, I guess it is. You're right. Easy living, uh, less <laughs> challenge. I'm almost wondering with less pressure of selection, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's the ones yeah. that stayed in the hostile area. You see, and that was what I was thinking. Yeah, that maybe the ones that were up in the desert. I'm assuming, I'm calling it the desert. I don't know sure. what it is. Let's call it the desert for the moment. Ended up needing to survive, needing to evolve to meet its challenges, becoming so a hardier stock. Yeah. Yeah. So what drives them to intelligence though? Because you can have a nice hardy animal that is perfectly adapted to the desert and it never needs intelligence as a survival trait. Yeah, this is true. Why would this thing need intelligence then? Presumably because there's something hunting it, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. I think you're always going to get developing intelligence either out of being a hunter or some sort of outside climate influence. Because let's face it, you don't need to be smart to chew grass and run away. This is true. So, um... (laughs) (laughs) I need to get a t-shirt that says that. Um, So let's say a desert creature of some kind needed to hunt things, and as a result, it needed to figure out how to hunt things. That's going to be the easiest thing for me to be able to visualize here. So what would this have come out of? Now, if we're talking about desert creatures, then I can think of things that are reptilian. Those, yeah. Yeah, those come to mind first. Is there anything, or is there anything else that... 
is desert born that we want to and play the, with? If the whole planet is warmer, then it does favor the warm blooded. Yeah. No, no, the cold blooded. The cold blooded, yeah. If you don't have to worry about regulating your yeah. body temperature. Well, that's the thing is, is a, that that's an is adaptation. The, the cold blooded creatures do need to worry about regulating their body temperature. Yeah. That's why lizards spend all day in the shade and come out at night. Yeah. Mm. So do we want to play with lizard people, or do we want to do, yeah. use something yeah, else? They can still be lizard people. They don't need yeah. to be cold-blooded. I'd say lizard-like or thicker skin to resist the burn okay. of, the, okay. of the atmosphere. Do we want these guys, then, to have the standard kind of upright walking, two arms, two legs type thing, or do we want them to be different? Do they need to walk upright other than to... Here's, I'm, I'm going to argue for a, a strong reason for them to walk upright. They are desert creatures, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a desert creature is going to be able to keep itself cool if less of its body is exposed to the sun. Correct. So that's a benefit of bipedalism. Yeah. Okay. It's, you present a narrower target. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I get So these things actually would be driven to stand up as straight as they possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps they even have some sort of ornamentation, like a sail or a crest, that they use in part to both radiate heat and in the mornings and the nights to gather heat. Mm. Like a king cobra when it flares its hood. Um, I find that interesting. And the reason I find that interesting is that also when we were talking about the light gravity, ah. um, if there's a possibility that maybe these things glide. Yep. Yep. I like it. And the other thing that the sail would be, because nature never wastes anything is it would be a secondary sexual characteristic. Ah. <laughs> look at me, look at Excellent. me, I'm so pretty. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. My sail's bigger than your sail. <laughs> and brighter and prettier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can fly much farther than he can. Okay, so that works nicely. So they have these flaps, basically, these <laughs> sails that we can place maybe around their necks, maybe also around their, uh, between their arms and uh, and legs that they can extend for various purposes. Ooh, yeah. is like a webbing type thing almost. I, I assume we're assuming that they see in our general vision spectrum. Always would be interesting to go with something different. Unless they're uh, nocturnal. I, mean, I was going to say, they could go with scent. I mean, they're... Yeah, I would think that they'd be more likely to be nocturnal, actually. Mm-hmm. There's less to see by at night than there is on this planet, so... Uh, we also talked about the planet having massive holes inside. Uh, oh, yeah, that's oh. right. They could be subterranean as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're cliff dwellers. Yeah. I like this idea. Cliff dwellers like would have a reason to be gliders. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, totally. Totally. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Watch that updraft. <laughs> exactly. <Whoa. laughs> so cliff dwelling lizard men, cliff dwelling gliding lizard men. But how many fingers do we want to give these guys? Does like it fingers matter? and toes. Not really, but um, <laughs> they've got digits. opposable thumbs, I assume. Four digits, yeah. I, for Three. some reason, I tend to harp on that sometimes. I don't know why. <laughs> I need to know how many fingers they have. It's vitally important. Three with um, opposable thumb to make four, because yeah. they have to have yeah. tools. If we were looking at one of these guys, would they have kind of the sort of pointed lizard face, or would they have a less convex face? I'm going to throw this out there. Based on the lower gravity, the semi-airborne nature of these creatures, they're going to be very lightly built. They're going to be probably, one way or another, streamlined. 
Yeah, so um, actually they might have kept the sort of beak-like things then. Yeah. We may be talking about, basically, intelligent pterosaurs. That's not a bad thing. So I assume maybe they have sort of finer scales than most lizards were used to, but what... Or uh, feathers. What col- or feathers, possibly. Well, what color do we want these things to be? What range of colors are we going to kind of look at? They're going to have to match the environment. I would think either a rusted red, depending on the soil makeup, or a brown, a tan. Yeah. Anywhere from that range. Let me throw out there that their bellies and the underside of their wings should match the ground. Yeah. Because that's what the things that they're hunting are going to see. Actually, okay. no, other way around. Other way around. Yeah, 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 that's what, yeah so the yeah, their backs should match the ground. Their backs should match the ground. However, I'm still going to go for, and maybe this only happens when they're in season, but I'm still going to go for the idea that those wings are also used as flashy sexual signals, maybe totally. for one yep. gender. Well, I think it's probably going to be a show of interest if they show you the undersides of their, uh, of their, uh, you know, if they show you their flaps, basically. <laughs> Come around, I'll show you my flap, baby. He's showing the inside of his flaps. That must mean he's interested. Okay. <laughs> nice. All right. So we've got these guys. They're kind of sort of browner on the backs and maybe toward the front. Maybe they go slightly sort of redder or pinker, maybe. Mm-hmm. Now, very briefly, do we want to conjure up some sort of like monster thing that they're fighting or do we want to leave that to the wayside? <laughs> well, I mean, what is a monster? A predator, basically. Okay. Predator beast. Yeah. Perhaps. I guess it depends on a couple of things. Because basically, we haven't had any predators for a long, long time. Because we Except have tools. Our, our vampire overlords. Well, <laughs> right, yes. Right. We, we can't talk about them. <laughs> Not publicly. They may be listening. But you know what I mean. As soon as we figured out how to make a spear, yeah. we stopped having predators. This um, is true. So I guess it depends on how far along these guys are. Granted, get caught alone at dawn and the giant glooboglaga comes out of its hole and gets you. Yeah. But by and large, they're probably top of the food chain. Yeah, I'm figuring they would be. I was thinking about, yeah, just basically, do we want to throw in, uh, as an example of fauna, some sort of glooba out there? I can uh, see <laughs> some sort of, like, almost like a spider, like a big, a large trapdoor camel uh-huh. spider that comes nice. out. Sort of a desert spider thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep, that camouflages itself and then waits for them to, you know, single prey comes along and whack. Gone. Uh, giant kind of eight-legged insect thing mm-hmm. that yep. maybe it also is cave-dwelling, mm-hmm. and that may be why they see it. It kind of is like there's maybe competition that goes on a little bit sometimes when they're clearing out a new uh, <laughs> new nests or yeah. new cliffs, basically. Yep. Sure. Wow. Okay. Actually, yeah, I'm assuming that the lizard people are about human-sized. Do we want that, or do we want them to be? Yeah, that's fun. Okay. Roughly, and, you know, five to six foot. Okay. Actually, and do you see them with a tail, or is it just the body, leg, no tail? If they're gliders, they probably have tails. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking, and they, the tail might have, like, a little fan on it, too, or something. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't have a tail, they probably have a crest that serves the same purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've got something that at least looks like a tail, I would yeah. say. Okay. Okay. And uh, how big so, do we want these spider creatures to be? It's got to be large enough that it can solo one of the, the <laughs> lizard folks. So. so we want to say twice as big, three times as big? I didn't. I don't think you need to go that... I, I could see twice no, I think as big. They, they need to be huge because they're... Yeah. There's not going, going to be that into, many of them. Are we going into Shelob range here? Or, oh, uh, yeah. I, Shelob, yep. <laughs> okay, so massive big, big spider thingies. Which is disturbing on a lot of levels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they also, I assume, would be kind of sort of maybe like darker browner shades to try to sort of blend in, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, if they're trapdoors creatures, if they're ambush predators, yeah. you know. Yeah, they're they Maybe to... they're like chameleons. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
That's their niche. Nice. You don't see them until you're stepping cool. on them. Go or ahead. tripping over them. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You're not going. And in this culture, it's a badge of honor to kill a chameleon spider when yeah. it's matching a particularly interesting color. And then you wear, <laughs> yeah. that, and then you wear that skin frozen in that color. Yes. Wow. That's great. That's, that's great. awesome. Yeah, no, that, that works. If it's a hunter-gatherer society, maybe that's kind of something that it's a badge of honor and maybe right. their leader generally wears. Right. Like a like, headdress. Yep. It's like like they, get the, they get the gold headdress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they happen to catch one when it was in its golden phase, which is not often. So that's very cool. I think we've got then uh, enough for basics. We're running up on the edge of time here. So yep. is there are there any other quick details we want to throw in before we name these things? Oh, no. Sandstorms, of course. Well, yeah, well, desert, there, yep. there will be sandstorms, yes. Uh, but I assume that uh, since you were talking about weather before, you're saying that it's mostly like, would it be like the uh, they, they would just happen like briefly at uh, one point during the day? If these creatures are in the desert band of the planet... Think about large-scale desert climates on Earth and make it bigger. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, basically, the larger the desert, the larger the range of aridity. You get those nifty storms and whatnot on the edges of deserts where climates are colliding. But in the middle of a desert, it's kind of a vicious circle, if I understand my climatology correctly. Arid just leads to more arid. (laughs) So there might be some very, very rare, huge thunderstorms and attendant flash floods and whatnot. But that's a once a year type thing, right? Maybe less. Um, Yeah, probably way less, actually. Yeah. And, oh. I mean, and, and that's another factor is these guys probably don't live in the heart of the desert. They probably yeah. live on the edges. Maybe where they can get to the temperate zone if they need to. And Well, they probably, you know, it's probably a big deal when their unintelligent cousins migrate up from the south or down from the north. Yeah. Because they probably hunt them. Yes. Ooh, yeah. Yes. Interesting things happen at boundary conditions. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. We only have a few things to name, thankfully. It's not yeah. a lot. Typically, we name the world last because that's like also the name of the episode in the setting. Mm-hmm. But the next question is, what do we name the lizard folk? Well, um, are we because, asking what we would name them or what do they name themselves? What do they name themselves? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> what, well, now you're getting into a question of... Uh, lizard folk are called... <laughs> or, I don't know how to spell... Um, well, yeah, is that 16 I mean, or 17 S's? <laughs> uh, you know, how do they communicate? I would assume they've come up with a language of some kind at this point. I'm I'm assuming that they have a a verbal language, but they probably also communicate via semaphore. Yeah. On their wings. With their wings and their flat. That's true. I can Yeah. Yeah. Which, of course, doesn't translate well into the title of a podcast, but... Two beats for long S, one beat for short S. (laughs) (laughs) This person's name is Wide Flap Red. Uh... (laughs) Who hunts puddles? No, I don't know. <laughs> that's probably so, why I'm too far off. That's, that's yeah, it's probably the people's names, yeah. yeah. For the lizard folk, and, you know, obviously we didn't have time to go into tribes or anything. We may revisit it at some point and do that. But with the lizard folk species, I think it'd be easier to just say, what do we call them and will? Crested <laughs> cliff gliders. They are crested cliff gliders. I'm a master of the obvious. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah actually, that's all I a, lot of times, a lot of times, I guess it would be something taken from the local language. So, I mean, we could play with a few different words and mutate them here as need be. So we so could always it, base it off the cliff dwellers down in New Mexico and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, we could take something like that. Let's say the Pueblos were cliff-dwelling folk, mm-hmm. weren't they? Pueblos, yeah. Yeah. So maybe something that sounds Pueblo-ish but is inspired by, like, some of these lizard 
things, these lizard classifications I'm looking here, like Gekota. Uh, or Gila. 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 Gila, yeah. Gila uh, Cliff Dwelling Monument in New Mexico. Gila. So maybe something... So, uh, it's, it's Gila, I think. It's, it's Gila. Oh, it's a, yeah, like a Gila it monster. Is, it is Gila, yeah, like Gila monster. So if we wanted to start with Gila and morph it into something else that sounds like an alien race, would we go with, say, like the Giladons or something? The Heladons? The Heladons. <laughs> is, sure. Is, is that too crazy? Or? No, no not, not at all. Yep. So Heladons, cool. spelled G-I-L-A. D-O-N? And all the fans will mispronounce it. So you know it's a good name, because that's what's going to happen. What do we want to call the chameleon spiders? Mm. Sand jumpers. Actually, that's not bad. Yeah, why not? Beasts, for some reason, easier to name. <laughs> <laughs> now, is the moon going to be significant enough for it to have a name? Yeah, it's, 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 a bo- it's a heavenly it's body. It's there. So. Okay. What do we think that they call the moon? Little Blinky. Yes, that's it. Little Blinky. <laughs> it's not little. Uh, go for it. It's not necessarily little. It wasn't little. Well, that's true. Yeah, it's just not, uh, there's not a not lot inside. Massive. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, if it's a primitive culture, they probably look at it as either an animal or a god. Yeah. Shahoma? But, I mean, like, planet is a wanderer. That was what a planet is in, right. I guess it's Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so, so, so it's going to be something like that, like the traveler. Well, or, yeah, yeah. Actually, I like the idea of using a word that means traveler. Here's an idea. There's a traveling thing that they hunt. So if we figure out the name of their less intelligent food source, <laughs> <laughs> maybe the moon is a sort of a mythological representation of that and can be a derivative of that in its name. Okay. Okay. Uplurity? Hmm? Uplur. Aplurideae. It's a type of iguana. Yeah, it's a Madagascan iguanas. Aplurus. There you go. Are we good with using the... the, uh, For the moon, right? For the moon, yeah. Okay. Sure. That sounds nice. All right. Aplurus. That is also a genus of the Madagascan iguanas, but I think that'll serve. So they call the moon Aplurus. They call the moon the moon. And so, they call the moon the moon, but so yeah, we, so now a pluricide the food the lesser oh the, oh, the food, food their food source people. yeah oh, okay because um, derivative of the I like okay. the apluri or something like that yeah yeah, yeah. We, yeah the apluri actually sounds good sure we went out and we hunted a pluri today mm-hmm. all right I guess the singular for a pluri might just be a plur or it could be a pluri or it could be a pluri I guess they could yeah it's just both singular and plural what do we want to name the star. I don't think it's going to be looked upon favorably. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The the burning eye, or, or it's yeah. going to be something like the burning. Yeah, the burning. Yep, mm. or, or something like that. Yeah, you know, I was thinking okay. about about the origin of the word burn. Oh, um, and I'm finding the Indo-European based is I'm not going to pronounce it right, but Beru, B H R E U. Ooh, Beru. B-H-R-E-U. Okay, so Brug. like... Brug. Brug. Oh, I guess it's Boer. That even sounds better. I like how it's spelled then. Boer. Yeah, Boer. If we don't mind playing with the spelling a little bit, I think maybe... I am seeing maybe if we transliterate it a bit. Mm-hmm. Be something like Boer. B-H-U-A-I-R. Does that sound good? Sure. I-R. Yep. Boer. Okay. That's Very good. The star and I so want a silent P in there somewhere. <laughs> Curse you! <laughs> so we've got one thing left to name. Yay! And that is the planet. 
Oh. What do we want to name this planet? They're cliff dwellers. Gotta go off of that somehow. The biggest cliff? Maybe they just think they live off of whatever is the biggest cliff that's their planet. (laughs) I am actually, I've got on an English to Greek Mm -hmm. dictionary here. Cliff comes out as Kremos. Ooh, I like that. Kremos. It actually is G-K-R, but I think if we drop the G, (laughs) what do we think? Sure. I don't know. The silent G kind of hangs in there. Silent G, I know. (laughs) We should have a silent P. I and a silent P now. (laughs) Uh, Actually, you know what? If we want a silent P, actually, no. Silent P's might be appropriate if it's P-T, because they're lizard. How about Tamos? Spelled P-T-E-M-O-S. Yes, I like it. Sounds sound like it comes from a different language than the name of the of the star. That is but, true. But that's okay. But that's okay because languages change and are together and all that. The star so. is bad. <laughs> that is true. That, yeah, the PT it's, thing does kind of make it a little weird. It's probably a curse word. Yes. Yeah. It's accompanied by a flapping of the crest. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do we want to keep it that, or do we want to morph it so that it's a little more like the other language? No, no, I, I like it that way. I think it's good. Yeah. So the name of the world is Tamos. Mm-hmm. Sure. Are we good with that? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. All right. Here we have it, then, ladies and gentlemen, the world of Tamos. Tamos. Cool. Yay. Uh, Orbit around the star of Buer. Buer. Inhabited by the, the Helidons. Yeah, <laughs> who apparently uh, have three different languages involved in their creation, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Now, uh, before we uh, dive off the edge here, did anyone have any recommendations or anything they wanted to throw out? This totally put me into the mood, and I'm going to have to go out and find it. There was a great game in the past by the Sim City people called Sim Earth. Sim Earth, right? And and oh, I yeah. Spore was game. kind of the Spore. grandson of the that. offshoot. Yeah. So and I remember when I was in school studying geography that that was I actually had a class that assigned to play Sim Earth. Nice. And, and turn the dials essentially and those kind of things. It was pretty good Sim. Very cool. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, guys. This was fun. I, I hope that we didn't get too deep into the math. And, John, thank you for man oh, the, the calculator. <laughs> it was very brave of you, sir. It was fun. <laughs> and one more time, Matt, if anyone wants to check out your stuff online, where do they go? You can find everything that you could care to want to know about me, including all of my ebooks and music uh, at Matt. Selznick.com. That's M A T T S E L Z, like zebra, N I C K.com. As I mentioned earlier, I'm an author and uh, a creator of various things. And I also provide creative services to independent creators, especially authors. Everything from web hosting to website creation to social media to editing and uh, story consultation as well as ebook creation and page layout and all that stuff. So I will help you from basically soup to nuts, get your creative endeavor out there in the world. And of course, this whole show has been kind of dedicated to the first volume in my secondary creation series of ebooks called World Building for Writers, Gamers, and Other Creators. Volume one is out there right now star planet moon and uh, you can get that at amazon at barnes and noble at their website and also at the rpg net family of sites 
It's an ebook available in EPUB and Mobi format. And yeah, I hope to see people over at my site, take part in commenting on the blog posts and whatnot. And hopefully I can help some creators get their stuff going as well. Cool. Well, thanks so much. This has been great, man. I really appreciate your coming on and hanging out with us. Likewise. Uh, I had a blast. Thank you, folks, for downloading. Say goodbye, fellas. Good night. Goodbye. Good night. <laughs> thanks a lot. We are out. Thank you for listening to Crucible of Realms. Do you have comments or a question? Have you used one of our settings? Tell us about it. You can contact us at podcast at crucibleofrealms.com or leave a review for us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Or if you'd like to contact one of the hosts individually, you can find our emails on the website at crucibleofrealms.com. The Crucible of Realms podcast and all settings created on it are released under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 unported license. All music was composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com.